Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 104 of the John Riley Project. Today is Sunday, January 12th, 2020. We are broadcasting, as we always do, from the city in the country, Poway, California. Welcome. And thanks for joining us. This is a podcast all about life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, today, we're going to talk about Neil Pert and the band Rush. We're going to talk about some San Diego news, some Poway news, some sports, some politics, some cultural things that'll be really fun to explore. Um, you know, but before we get started, you know, just right from the top, I just like to ask a favor of you. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. You can just click on the subscribe button right below the video, and you can even click on that bell to be alerted when we have new episodes. Um, And if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever your popular podcast platform is, please subscribe there. So we're really working on building up our subscription base and just really trying to build the audience, share the news, and your support is just so appreciated. We really thank you for joining us. Um, God, there's so much going on right now. I mean, first of all, I hope you all had a really happy holiday season. You know, speaking for myself and my family, we just had a great time. It was very relaxing. Both of our children are in town, so it was terrific. Uh, But, you know, now it's uh, we're about into the second week of the month of January. So we're kind of right back into reality. So hopefully that transition has been good for you, too. Um, Yeah, like I was saying, we... This is our first solo podcast, you know, really in about a month, you know, with the holiday season. And then we had a number of really good guests over the last few weeks that I hope you got a chance to check out. We had Nick Neal on that. He's the author of the book, Just Be. And we talked about mindfulness and meditation and you know, really kind of settling your mind and gaining clarity, gaining focus. That was a really special podcast that I really enjoy. Great self-improvement topic. Um, We had Kevin McNamara here. Um, Kevin is the developer uh, for the proposed the farm at Poway. And this is the transformation of the Stone Ridge Golf Golf Course or Stone Ridge Country Club here in the northern part of Poway. And Kevin spent, oh my gosh, three hours with us. He talked about the plan. We went over you know, a lot of the details of his um, housing plan, the farm, the agriculture, the butterflies, the the barn, I mean, uh, the, the, the open spaces. And Kevin also shared a lot of amazing thoughts, very insightful thoughts on things that are going on here in Poway with Poway politics uh, and the Poway business um, environment. You know, Kevin, a longtime Powegian and you know, spent a good amount of his time also in Rancho Penasquitos. So an important um, and really kind of a powerful local figure. So if you're interested in what's going to happen, potentially what's going to happen with the Stone Ridge Country Club, or just want to get insight to members on the Poway City Council and and Poway Unified School District, but Kevin really shared what he thought, and um, it was a fabulous interview. So I hope you can check that out. Okay, and then, of course, we had David Leland. 
You know, David is um, a young man here in Poway, just a tremendous sports um, personality, really knows the data, knows the facts, has hot takes on a variety of topics. We talked about the Padres, the Aztecs. We talked about the NFL. Um, David will be visiting us from time to time. It's lately, it's been about once a month or so, and he always has great insight. I love talking sports. But I really love talking with guests, and David has a lot to offer. Um, so don't be surprised if someday you see David Leland as a a talk show host, a podcaster himself. Maybe he's going to be on television. David has a lot to offer in the world of sports journalism, sports commentary. And uh, i just really happy to have him join us here on the John Riley Project. Um, we have Fernando Garcia that joined us um, last week. Fernando, a candidate for the United States House of Representatives for Congress um, from, I think it was District 53. And this is the central San Diego district that includes Mission Hills, Hillcrest, Old Town. It includes Mission Valley, La Mesa, Allied Gardens, um, City Heights, University Heights, the college area, North Park, La Mesa, um, parts of El Cajon, parts of Chula Vista. Um, and the great thing about Fernando, the thing that I really, really admired in what he is doing is that he is an independent candidate for Congress. He is not beholden to the Democratic Party. He is not beholden to the Republican Party. And I just really thought he had a very nice, balanced approach. He's not an ideologue um, of the hardcore left or the hardcore right. Uh, in, in many ways, his message, I thought, was very refreshing. So I encourage you to go and check that out, especially if you live in District 53. Um, so this is Susan Davis's old district. You know, she's re- retiring. And there are 15 candidates that are running for office. I think he said 11 were Democrats, three Republicans, and he was the sole independent. Um, And he's a San Diego State Aztec alum and great guy. So we had a great conversation with Fernando Garcia. And then finally, Jake LeClaire joined us last week as well. Really an interesting conversation about addiction um, with drugs and alcohol or Really, alcohol is a drug. I should just say addiction with drugs and and some of the darkness that's involved there and ways to seek help and ways to break free of the addiction. And then, of course, uh, you know, Jake's has a unique therapy where he brings um, patients that are struggling with addiction um, out to the ranch and they connect with, with what he calls equine therapy or horse therapy, where in the presence of a horse – There is a certain magic where these struggling addicts can find that inner peace and really live in the moment and really address reality rather than living in this false reality of addiction. And the horse provides an amazing and innovative mechanism to get people to that special place. One quote that really stuck with me in our interview is he said that For a normal person that goes to traditional therapists, it might take them two years to work through a set of issues, but with equine therapy, that two years can be reduced to two months. I was like, wow. Um, So a a great conversation. We talked about the prevalence of drugs in society and how easy it is to get drugs. You know, here in our North County inland community, we talked about Rancho Penasquitos and Rancho Bernardo and Poway in that conversation. So 
really fascinating. Um, opioids was discussed, alcohol. So it was a really interesting conversation. So I invite you to join us on that episode featuring Jake LeClaire um, and our conversation about addiction and equine therapy. And so that brings us to where we are now. And so we're back here doing a solo podcast. And, you know, like I said before, I really enjoy having guests. I prefer having guests rather than doing the solo podcasts. But I think these solo podcasts are a fun way for me to fill in the gaps, a fun way for me to express myself and just share my top of mind thoughts on a variety of things and a a conversation starter. So, you know, when we talk about these things, we always invite you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and continuing the conversation. Um, And, you know, my handle on Facebook is John Riley Project and on Twitter, it's John Riley Poway. So reach out to me there if you want to continue the conversation. So I really want to talk about what I thought was one of the bigger news stories of this past week was the passing of Neil Peart. And Neil, um, the drummer for the rock band Rush, um, really, some think he is the greatest drummer in rock and roll history um, and just an incredibly talented man. Um, and he passed away of brain cancer. Um, he had stepped down from the band Rush about five or six years ago. Um, and I remember originally he had said that his shoulders and knees were worked over from so much physical exertion behind the drums. And if you see the way he plays, he really gives it his all. But it turned out, I guess he wasn't really public about it, but he did have brain cancer that he had been battling with you know, for at least the past three years. And he finally passed away. I think it was in his home in Santa Monica, California, earlier this week. So, um, you know, Neil Peart, just like I said, just one of the greatest drummers of all time, an incredible lyricist. I mean, he's like a legit poet and, and an author and just really had so much to offer with this rock and roll band. Uh, the band Rush, if you're not aware of them or familiar with them, and I thought this was an incredible stat, Rush has sold some 40 million records and the band ranks third behind the Beatles and the Rolling Stones for the most consecutive gold or platinum studio albums by a rock and roll band. Wow. I mean, anytime you're in that lofty of a presence, you know, right up there with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Rush was an important band, a very special band, a progressive rock band, a band that didn't always get their just due um, for a number of reasons, and we're going to talk about that. But Neil Peart was just the intellectual behind this project and just a really special guy. And over the past week, especially I think it was on Thursday and Friday, we just saw on Facebook just an outpouring of – of um you know, I, I guess sorrow and an output of respect, an outpouring of respect for Neil Peart, um, just tremendous tribute. And then, you know, even this weekend, I'm watching the NFL games and on television, you know, they have the bumper music right before they go to commercial and they were playing a lot of Rush music. So it was great to see it there as well. Um but, you know, Neil Peart, uh, just a really interesting guy. He's a very complex guy. Um, he joined the band after their second album. And, um, you know, he really transformed the band from a more or less a straight ahead rock and roll band to this prog rock, a, a band that was greatly influenced by philosophy. In many ways, the philosophy of Ayn Rand and that created devotees. It created critics because of it. Um, and he's he just an interesting dude. I mean, 
they when they toured, it was funny. It's like they would tour with some of the biggest bands of all time in the 70s and early 80s. And, you know, after the concert, you know, these other famous rock and roll musicians would go out and party and, and you know, trash and furniture in their hotel room. But Neil Peart would go back to his room and he would read um, because he really just enjoyed reading. And his reading greatly inspired a lot of the lyrics that the band Rush put forward. Um, but a lot of other interesting things with him. Um, you know, the band would tour on a bus, but he really enjoyed riding his motorcycle. I think he had a BMW touring bike and he just loved the solitude and the peacefulness. And so a lot of times when they were traveling by bus and they would get about a hundred miles away from their destination, he had his bus available, excuse me, he had his motorcycle available in the bus and he would hop off the bus and then ride his bike the the final hundred miles. And it would just be a I mean, I think Nick Neald would appreciate this, a form of mindfulness, a form of meditation as he got ready and prepared for his next concert. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he also there was a, he had a tragedy in his life. It was around 1997. His daughter um, at the time, his only child, was 19 years old. She was, um, you know, in a car accident and lost her life. And this just ruined him. And and then he basically took time off. You know, he said he was retired. It turned out to be a sabbatical of about four years. And even within a year after he lost his daughter, his wife passed away. So he just went through a great deal of tragedy. There was a time then where a lot of the Rush fans weren't sure if he was coming back. And I think he ended up coming back to the band in 02. And, um, uh, and, and a lot of us were really pleased to, to see him back. We all cared and were concerned for him. But the guy's been through a lot. Um, but the band um, Rush, I mean, I was introduced to them when I was in high school. I'm, you know, I was a freshman in high school in 1978. And I remember back then, you know, Van Halen was getting their start. And, and, and you know, there were a lot of big rock and roll bands at the time. Led Zeppelin was still going. They were right near the end. It was right before John Bonham passed away. Um, but I remember the song Spirit of the Radio. And, and that just has this incredible... Um, guitar opening. And that really hooked me. And, and I really enjoyed Rush. And at the time, Rush was just like another one of the great rock and roll bands to me. I wasn't really a, a you know, I, I'm not really a literature aficionado, so I didn't really go deep into the lyrics, but I enjoyed the music. I enjoyed the drive of the music. And it was just kind of in the rotation of a lot of these other bands that I used to listen to. Um, but they have so much to offer. And when you look at some of their songs, like the song Anthem, um, it's about believing in yourself. I mean, and we've talked about this all the time in our podcast about how to believe in yourself and really the fact that you're better than you think you are. Um, and that song really embraced that notion. It was about living for yourself, living your life on your based on your own values. And a lot of that is the philosophy of Ayn Rand and objectivism. And we, this is when we started seeing that influence come into the lyrics that came from Rush. Um, there was another cool song that Rush put together, and it was really driven by, um, by Neil Peart, and it's the song YYZ. And it's an instrumental and, and YYZ is actually the three-letter call sign of the Toronto airport, you know, like L.A. is LAX and San Diego is SAN. Um, Toronto's airport is YYZ or YYZ. And if you were to transform YYZ into Morse code, 
that is the rhythm of the song YYZ. And I, I, I remember I learned that probably about 20 years ago. A friend of mine who's a drummer told me that and I, it blew me away because it was always kind of this cool, you know, different kind of time signature song that you don't normally hear. But I had no idea that its fundamental foundation was the Morse code of the airport call letters. So just these little nuances with the band were just incredible. Um, the song Red Barchetta, if you've ever heard that, just an amazing car song, driving song. And then there are songs like The Trees. And The Trees, you know, it was interesting. It was a metaphor, you know, about the tall trees oppressing the small trees. And and um, I just want to read a lyric to you. And I, I just thought it was special. It says... Um, And it was about the oaks. The oaks were the tall trees and the maples were the shorter trees. And the maples were always upset that the oaks were getting all the light, you know. So it was really kind of a metaphor about like in some cases income inequality. You know, the big trees are getting the money. The little trees are not getting as much money. And the lyric went, um, so the maples formed a union and demanded equal rights. The oaks are just too greedy. We will make them give us light. Now, there's no more oak oppression, for they passed a noble law, and the trees are all kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. And really, I mean, there's a lot of deep meanings in that. When they asked um, Neil Pert what it really meant, he just said, oh, I just kind of had this idea from a cartoon. I saw these trees, and I thought it'd be fun to make uh, pretend they're people. I don't think he's being truthful. I think this really means a lot of different things. And that's the beauty of art is that you can see it, read it, hear it, and different people will interpret it in different ways. And, you know, this notion of these trees demanding equal rights, you know, we've talked about equal rights and equality under the law a lot on this podcast. And so I hear something like this, it immediately makes my ears perk up. Um, but I thought it was interesting for at the end, they say, um, for they passed a noble law and the trees are all kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. And I think that's an important point is that when we talk about, um, you know, e- equality in terms of equality under the law is very important. When we talk about equality in the ter- terms of equal outcome, equal opportunity, if we talk about um, equality under the notion of Income inequality or income equality, you know, they say, as as Neil Pert said here, um, the trees are all kept equal by hatchet, axe, and saw. And I think that's a reflection of what Elizabeth Warren represents. This is how I this is how I'm interpreting it, because she wants I've I've commented on Elizabeth Warren. I am not a fan of her, but how she wants to tear people down, um, tear the rich down and. and really, I think that this is a very good representation of it. We, we see in these lyrics. Some people like that. Some people don't like that. Um, but the, I guess what we're getting at here is that this band was very unlike most rock and roll bands. It wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll and, you know, party, you know, rock and roll all night and party every day. I mean, the lyrics in this band were just very deep, very meaningful um, and had a philosophical basis to it, especially in their early days. Um, that really made them special and really set them apart. Besides the fact that their music was really had really interesting rhythms and and really complex um, kinds of rhythms. So, 
I mean, speaking of lyrics, just a lot of great lines from the band Rush that I just really identify with. Um, from the song Tom Sawyer, his mind is not for rent to any god or government. I mean, well, that's a great line there, too. I mean, it's about really individualism, about, you know, taking pride in who you are, having high self-esteem and not being, you know, greatly influenced, not being kept under the thumb of any authority. I thought that was brilliant. Um, the song Spear of the Radio, which I commented earlier, which has that great opening line on the guitar. Um, this this quote or this lyric, one likes to believe in the freedom of music, but glittering prizes and endless compromises shatter the illusion of integrity. And, you know, that was a reflection of how they were achieving success on the um, as a rock and roll band, but it was in the in the category of be careful what you wish for because it brought with it just tremendous burdens and and it made their life difficult in many ways even though they were experiencing fame and fortune. Then um, another great song from them, the uh, song "Free Will." Um, you can choose a ready guide in some celestial voice. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You can choose from phantom fears and kindness that can kill. I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. Ah, just brilliant. So this whole notion of as an individual, you have choice. You have control over your own destiny to the, the greatest degree possible. Um, and really just embracing your ability to control or manage your life. And that's why we talk about this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These ideals are very similar. It, it's it's, the, it's the, the notion of you own your life. You have a right to your own life. You have a right to manage your own life. You have a right to determine your own destiny, um, or at least to pursue your own destiny, pursue your own happiness. Um, and the song Free Will just says, you know, you have the ability to choose and you should take advantage of that and and don't let authority figures try to thwart your choice um another song which is a great one subdivisions which i just loved um be cool or and this is a song about um teenagers and they were teenagers in high school um, and the struggles that teenagers go uh, through in high school and and the battling with their peers but this was in a suburban environment you know where as an artist, they were framing the suburbs as a place sort of devoid of, of richness or character like we would see in a vibrant city. Um, and, and the lyric goes, be cool or be cast out. Any escape might help to smooth the unattractive truth, but the suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of youth. And it was great. And if you see the video, the video is tremendous where it's kind of a loner kid and he sees the popular kids bopping around in cars. And then he eventually makes his way to the city and all the glittering lights and he's infatuated with all of it. And then, he, you know, he kind of tires of it and then comes back to the suburbs. But it was all about the struggle as a teenager and the, the peer pressure and the things that go on in a culture in high school. And it was just fantastic. What a great song. Um. This is an, this is another great line here, and this is from the song Witch Hunt. Um, quick to judge, quick to anger, slow to understand, ignorance and prejudice and fear walk hand in hand. Let me say that again. I, I think I might have disrupted the rhythm. Quick to judge, quick 
to anger, slow to understand, ignorance and prejudice and fear walk hand in hand. So that's from the song Witch Hunt. This, I think, is very reflective of what we're seeing in the political environment in America. You know, this notion of ignorance and prejudice and fear. I mean, think about the people that want to build the wall um, along the southern border. A lot of that's based on fear, in my opinion. A lot of that based on prejudice. But we see fear and and hatred and prejudice all through all these divisive things in our culture, in our politics, where people are divided by race, by sexual orientation, by ethnicity, by gender, um, by religion, by nation of origin. Um, And um, I, I just think this is really special. Quick to judge, quick to anger, slow to understand Ignorance and prejudice and fear walk hand in hand. Wow. Um, and then another song. This is from Entre New. And this was just kind of a neat, neat lyric that I really enjoyed. Just between us, I think it's time for us to recognize the differences we sometimes fear to show. Just between us, I think it's time for us to realize the spaces in between leave room for you and I to grow. So this song was a lot about his relationship with the audience, but in many ways it's about the relationship between people. And, you know, it's time to recognize the differences we sometimes fear to show, you know, and this is all about the uniqueness of the individual. Sometimes we're, we're cloaked and not wanting to really be who we are, not willing to, I guess, have self-esteem to take pride in ourselves. We sometimes want to cower and cover up the differences that we have. Um, But it's time for us to realize the spaces in between, which are really the differences between people, leave room for you and I to grow. And that means, you know, as we connect with different people, as we interact with people of different stripes, that's how we grow. That's how we learn. And that's how we become better. Um, so just, I mean, the lyrics that he produced were fantastic. And I'm just skimming the surface. And, you know, by no means am I like a rush aficionado that has, you know, spent countless hours reading the liner notes of their albums. But what I have read, what I have listened to, I've always enjoyed. And it always inspires me to go and dig deeper. And I'll have these, you know, times when I just get hooked on certain YouTube videos and I start watching videos of old songs and then I'll bring up another window on my computer that has the lyrics and I'll listen to the song and read it as it's occurring. I mean, maybe back in the 1970s, we, we had the 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 vinyl, the 33, and we put it on our turntable and we sat in the corner of the room and and pulled out the, the record sleeve that had all the lyrics. I'm doing the 21st century version of that. But when I, and I do that with a lot of other bands as well, but I just know every time I do it with Rush, I just keep going a little bit deeper. And each time I'm just really just fascinated. Um, and, and over time, you know, the band Rush Originally, you know, like I said, it was just another one of the – it was another Aerosmith. It was another ACDC. It was another Van Halen when I was young, when I was in high school. Um, then I got into college and I learned a little bit more about them and, you know, but then that was the new wave era and kind of 
the the prog rock or the heavy rock wasn't as big. Um, but as I became an adult, I learned more. And then I learned much later um, the whole Ayn Rand influence to them that intrigued me. Um, but there were also little things, just very subtle little things that I learned about Rush that made me really like them. Um, one of them was is that there there are a number of documentaries on the band. There's a really good one. Um, what is it? What is the name of it? It's um, it's the name of the documentary is a, is a Rush song, but it's on Netflix and it's really good. Um, and in the documentary, I think it was that documentary. Maybe it was another one. Um, Getty Lee, who's the drummer. Excuse me. <laughs> Getty Lee, who's the bassist. What am I saying? So Getty Lee, the bassist, is is a big baseball fan. And, and I'm a big baseball fan. And so he has a room in his house that's like a little museum with all these different baseballs that all have been signed by different people. And, and he's a big fan of the Toronto Blue Jays because they're from Toronto. And I was like, really? I mean, I had no idea that these, this guy was a huge baseball fan. And this is, you know, some dude in Canada. Um, so I, the, just those little things like that made me connect with him. And then, you know, Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson, Alex was the or is the, the guitar player. They were um, childhood friends. I mean, they grew up together. They were in class together. I, certainly in high school, and I think even before that, in elementary or middle school, they grew up in the same city, and they started the band together, and they've always had this very special bond, and they're they're really close, um, and they're kind of sort of goofy and nerdy and and very lighthearted, and when you see them interviewed, it's just really enjoyable. They're not trying to be badass rock guys, you know, they're just you know just normal people, you know, they just happen to be really good artists, creative artists. Um, and it was interesting, you know, when when Neil Peart retired and, and retired for good, I think this was probably around 2013, 2014 or so, when he said, you know, he was troubled by his shoulders and his knees, you know, doing everything he does as a drummer. You knew that when they were interviewed, when Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson were interviewed, that they they still wanted to play because they loved it so much and they loved the audience and the, the special bond with the audience. And when you see them perform on stage, I mean, they are legitimately, sincerely just having the time of their life. Um, but they didn't, you know, because they knew they could never be Rush without Neil Peart because he was such a driving influence of the band. And they could never really be Rush with a substitute drummer because no substitute would be as good as Neil Peart. It'd be, you know, it's like, how do you replace, a you know, John Wooden is the head coach of UCLA. How do you re- replace the greatest of all time? You don't. You have to go out on top. And I know that kind of dug at them. You could tell. They, they wouldn't say it straight up. But you knew that they wanted to keep gigging. But, you know, I appreciated that, that they were so respectful of Neil, not wanting to go on without him. But then other little things, like um, in the 70s when they first got going, um, they toured with Kiss, and they got to know Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Now, back when I was in middle school, this is like, this is a funny story. Is back when I was in middle school, this is like 1977, 78 in that time frame. And this is right when Saturday Night Fever came out. And boy, everyone loved the Bee Gees and, and then Fleetwood Mac. And that was like a big thing in that era. And I love the band Kiss. I, I like in my bedroom, I had this giant Kiss poster and then right next to it, a giant Led Zeppelin poster. Um, but Kiss especially, because I just love the fact that they were a rock and roll band and they were like comic book people, you know, and it was just fun. Um, and uh, there was a girl in my class. Her name was Deidre Merriman. And 
we used to walk to school together, and, and this is like we were in the seventh grade. Um, and she really liked the band Kiss too, and everyone else liked the Bee Gees. So it was like this battle, you know, who's better, the Kiss or the Bee Gees? And it was just funny. So, anyways, Rush toured with Kiss, which in some ways, I mean, their music. Like I made reference earlier, the Rush is the exact opposite of rock and roll all night and party every day, which is what Kiss is all about. Um, but they they learned to they respected each other and they had a great relationship. And when you see interviews with Gene Simmons, he'll often talk about Rush and he'll kind of joke that yeah, those are nerdy guys and they go back in their room and read books and play board games. And you know, um, when he was out, you know hooking up with God knows who. Um, but they still had a, a great deal of respect. And I think in many ways, Kiss sort of taught um, Rush, the band Rush, some of the ropes about touring and, and gigging and everything else. So to me, again, these little things, I love baseball. Getty Lee loved baseball. I love Kiss. Rush toured with Kiss. Um, and then, you know, they have a, this, this, their fan base is unbelievable. It's like a cult. They, the fan base is just so loyal. They just love them so much. Um, and when you sense that, when you realize that it has such a strong, loyal fan base, you just tend to have respect. And like the Grateful Dead is another band like that that has a, I mean, just over the top loyal fan base. I've never been a huge Grateful Dead fan. I, I like, you know some of their more popular songs. I've never taken a lot of time to go deep into their in their into their catalog, but because they had such a f- deep, dedicated following, I've always had a great deal of respect for the Grateful Dead, especially since I grew up in San Francisco. So when I really, as I you know, like I said in the, in 1980, 81, Rush was this another one of the big rock bands. And then I learn more and more about them. And I get into the 90s and I realize that their followers are like these cult followers. And I'm like, wow, there must be something there, you know. And and then I saw the documentaries when the fans are in, in, interviewed and you realize it's it's a very deep relationship that these fans have with the band. And it just further intrigued me. Um, and then they also – had just this, they can be really goofy and they could have a fun sense of humor. And so, you know, when they're on stage, you know, one of the running jokes is, is that when bands are on stage, you know, they have this huge wall of, you know, guitar amplifiers and bass amplifiers. But in many ways, a lot of that's a facade. It's, it's really, they only have one amplifier that they mic up and that's what they run through the PA that drives the sound through the entire auditorium. But they create this backdrop of all of these amplifiers just to make it look, you know, badass um, and have a really interesting backdrop. But what Getty Lee would do is he wouldn't use any like cool bass, um, you know, bass amplifiers, bass cabinets as his backdrop. He would have washing machines or rotisserie chicken, just something goofy. And you could tell he just didn't take it that seriously or he didn't take himself that seriously. And he was willing to be a little bit. I don't know, just just sort of, you know, with a wry smile. And then you see other um, uh, times when Alex Lifeson will have, you know, his, you know, rack of, of, you know, guitar amps. But on top of him, he'll have like these dinosaur figurines and just, just some silly things. And I love that. I mean, because they weren't trying to be like, you know, death metal or anything. They were they were kind of nerdy and and fun and. And peculiar in a way, and, and it just it was endearing to me. So I, I just love them. 
Um, and Neil Peart, man, I mean, his passing, it's a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal in music history. It's a big deal um, for Rush fans. It's a big deal for people that are, you know, um, devotees of, of Ayn Rand and objectivism because this was the one rock band that embraced objectivism. Although later on, um, Neil Peart um, said he, you know, kind of had a, a shifting of opinion. Um I often wonder how much his views really did shift. I mean, he's a, he's an intellectual, so I'll, he's always digging and learning and growing. So maybe they did shift, but I know that they got a lot of crap um, from the uh, the press, from the people in you know the music industry. This whole notion of you know individualism, which is Ayn Rand collectivism versus uh, Ayn Rand um, and objectivism. Versus collectivism, which you know is like socialism and progressive politics, you know, artists tend to be in that other camp. The the progressive politics artists tend to be in the collectivist group. So, a lot of times, the band Rush would not get love from music critics. Some people thought it was because of this. They were straight ahead, straight on attacked because of their devotion to Ayn Rand, and they were called all sorts of horrible names because of it. I mean. They were calling them Nazis, which was insane. I mean, Getty Lee, the, the the bass player in the band, his parents were in Auschwitz They they as teenagers. And thank goodness they escaped. They got out. But his family was persecuted by the Nazis. And then some of these critics were calling the band Nazis, which makes no sense. That's not even a legitimate criticism of what Ayn Rand's all about. It's just foolishness. Um, so they were always getting attacked. They were never really getting their due. And for a long time, um, you know, they, they, it took them a very long time to finally to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and it finally happened. I don't know. It was maybe about six years ago, something like that. When they finally got inducted, it was long overdue. Um, but it's just, they're just a really interesting band because, I mean, if, even you go – go back to the mid 70s when they were really just getting going they they believed in what they were doing so much they believed in themselves they wanted to be creative they wanted to be innovative in what they did and they didn't want to conform to what was popular at the time they wanted to be expressive as individuals as a band um but you know back in the 70s that was the era of corporate rock and Bands like, you know, Boston and, and, you know, there were a lot of these prepackaged bands that were, you know, because the, the era of the 60s was a lot more creative and innovative. We got into the 70s, it became corporatized and they were always pushing Rush to come out with more commercial music and Rush would refuse and they would consistently put out more innovative, creative music and this this idea of of what Rand's philosophy is about is about you know standing up for yourself and um, believing in yourself and not compromising with these authorities um, that really rang true to them and I I have such respect for the band because they stuck to it in the face of strong headwinds and they eventually did get their due and they became as like I said the, the third um, they sold 40 million albums the third most consecutive gold or platinum albums in rock and roll after the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and they eventually got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame I mean deservedly so just an incredible band um, and you know it, it's interesting as 
back when I was in high school, especially in college and in my 20s, I went to a lot of concerts, you know, and I'm sure we can all sit around a table and share all their stories about every concert we went to. Um, but I never did see Rush. But back then, I wasn't – this was like in the 1980s and 90s. I wasn't really a huge fan of Rush, not enough to want to spend money to go to the show. But it was like as I got into the ni- late 1990s and certainly into the 21st century, I, I be really – understood them, appreciated them, respected them. And then I finally got to a point. It's like, I got to go see Rush, you know, at some point. And I remember I missed a few shows like in the the decade between 2000, 2010. And then I finally got tickets and went to the San Diego Sports Arena and saw them in 2012 on the Clockwork Angels tour. And it just, just to reel back a minute, I remember back then I said to myself, I'm kind of done going to all kinds of shows and concerts. Um, I just felt I just wasn't as into going to concerts as much. But there were three bands that I wanted to see before they went on. And I said, I've got to see these three. Um, And they were Rush. And you're going to laugh because their three are very different. Um, Rush, Tom Petty, and Hall & Oates. (laughs) Those are the three. And so I got to see Rush. And, and I was going to see Petty when he was at Del Mar at the um, uh, what the heck is that name of that that um, uh, not kebab um, I can't think of the name but it's that that big show that art show that they do at the Del Mar Fairgrounds um, not no kabu <laughs> kebab is what um, what is Afghanistan food <laughs> where you have a chicken on a skewer no. Um, uh, yeah, Kabu. I, I missed Tom Petty at one of those. And then I was getting ready. I was literally organizing, looking on the his concert list and saying, OK, he's not in San Diego this time. Maybe the next time he comes through. And then he tragically passed away. At, at a, I think he was in his mid-60s. Very unexpected. Um, so I never got to see Tom Petty. But I still have a ch- opportunity to see Hollow Notes, And I've got to go see him. And I know that they've already announced that they're going to be playing at a show later this year at one of the Indian casinos, um, I think out out towards Palm Springs. So I may trek out for that one. It's just you never know what's going to happen. Hollow Notes guys, I mean, they're older than me, so anything could happen. But anyways, I went to the show and and, and it was in 2012. And I saw um, the Clockwork Angels tour, and it was great. And it was they had this steampunk kind of thing on stage, and it was cool. But I, I just want to give a shout out to a really special person who I I knew back then, um, and his name's Brad Ware. And Brad Ware just passed away a few weeks ago. Uh, Brad Ware lives here in Poway, and the Ware family they have uh, you know two children, one of which played baseball with my son. So we always saw Brad at the Poway National Little League fields. We'd see him in travel ball all the time. And dude was fantastic. He was the biggest Rush fan I've ever met. And I remember he would be at the Little League fields wearing his Rush baseball jersey. It was like a legit baseball jersey, but with Rush um, across the top. Um, He was always wearing Rush t-shirts. When I went to the Clockwork Angels show, I, I ended up, you know, going on my own, but I found Brad Ware and his family there, got a chance to say hello to him at a Rush show. Um, and, and it was just one of a number of things that he, I mean, he and I weren't really friends, but I knew him. He knew me. 
I respected him. He did some th- great things for our little league, and he built some like racks for the helmets that they put in the dugout. He did some special things in our community. But I just want a big shout out to Brad Ware. Rest in peace. Um, you're up there now with Getty Lee. <laughs> Shoot me. You're up there with Neil Pert. Pardon me. Brad Ware, you're up there with Neil Pert. And um, I hope you guys get a chance to meet up in heaven. Big time. So big shout out. Rest in peace, Brad Ware. Huge Rush fan here in the city of Poway. So, wow. Getty Lee. Why, why do I keep saying Getty Lee? Neil Pert passed away. Huge. Huge piece of news. Um, okay. Let's, let's move on. Uh, um, our, the John Riley Project is sponsored by powwaystore.com come on out to powwaystore.com and you got t-shirts and coffee mugs and glassware and stickers all with various Poway slogans Poway themes um, you can sign up to get on the mailing list at powwaystore.com and you'll get updates on um, new offerings and as long as we're talking about mailing lists get on the John Riley Project mailing list you go to johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe and there you can get on our mailing list too but powwaystore.com um, again all kinds of Poway logoed merchandise some fun things there's a shirt on there that says straight out of Poway just like the old straight out of Compton um, there's uh, you know Poway shirts with American flags and some fun ones out there too so check it out Poway store.com and you can sign up on the mailing list at the website. Okay. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and this will be a kind of, this is why I said San Diego news, Poway news, just a kind of a short list of a number of things I just want to comment on in the, in the good uh, column. The first thing we got to talk about the San Diego state Aztec basketball team, 17 and Oh man, they are rolling. Um, last night, Saturday night, they um, crushed Boise state. I think they were up by over 20 points at halftime. It's this team is special. Um, this team is very talented. They, they're one of the best defensive teams in the nation. They've got guys that, that can shoot. I mean, how many years did we go with an Aztec program that was one of the best defensive teams in the nation, but couldn't for the life of them, put the ball in the bucket. You know, I remember, gosh, it was about five, six years ago. They went up to Wyoming. Uh, the Aztecs only scored nine points in the first half. So we've gone through a lot of years of having a very below average offense. Um, now the offense is just on fire. Uh, Malachi Flynn, just an incredible talent, um, not just as a shooter, but as um, a, a, an assist guy, as a floor general. Um, you know, we, Yanni Wetzel had a great game and loved when they were doing their, you know, kind of rotation around the perimeter. And Yanni Wetzel would get the ball and he'd be up along the three point line and usually pass it off to one of the other guys in the rotation. And there was a couple of them last, uh, last night. He would just turn the corner and go right to the rack and slam it down. It was beautiful. Um, KJ Fagan finally had a big game. He scored 23 points. I think they had four players in double digits. Um, just an incredible performance, and the team is just doing so great. So their next game is Tuesday night against Fresno State in Fresno. This is going to be a tough assignment. Um, there were two players on Fresno State that didn't play um, when they were here in San Diego on New Year's Day. Um, one of them, Nate Grimes, who's a fantastic post guy, rebound guy. And then they have a really fast, I think he's a point guard, shooting guard. I can't remember his name, um, but he's very good. Uh, they didn't play in the game. 
they're going to be there. And then they have another player who um, was an Aztec recruit that ended up going to Oregon or Oregon State instead, was only there for a year. And then Justin Hudson, who's the head coach at Fresno, former assistant at San Diego State, he recruited him back. And now this other guy, and is it Jordan Campbell? I think that's his name. He's now eligible. So there's going to be three new guys for Fresno going against, up against the Aztecs. And most likely, no Joel Mensah. I think not. Excuse me, no Nathan Mensah. So we're going to find out what happens to Nathan. Um, but I'm just so excited about Aztec basketball. Just great to be excited about San Diego sports because you usually have so little things to be excited about. But 17 and 0, um, and they're, they're favored to run the table for the rest of the regular season. So wouldn't that be something? Um, this morning, um, I was watching, this is a little bit on local politics. Um, I was, you know, online and had the TV on in the background, and it's KUSI. And I, who do I see is the man in the cowboy hat. It's Steve Voss. And he's being interviewed by, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Rudy. Um, what's his first name? I was going to say Joe Rudy. That was a left fielder for the Oakland A's back in the 70s. Um, Paul Rudy. Yeah, the guy from Prep Pigskin Report. Uh, Paul Rudy was anchoring the weekend news, and he was interviewing Steve Voss. And, you know, I got I got to give credit where credit's due. Voss is very good in front of the camera. Voss has his cowboy hat on. He's kind of a good old aw shucks kind of guy. He's got a he's got a brand. He's 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 got a personality. He comes across very very likable on 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 TV. And I thought he did a great job. I mean, I really did. Um he uh he touched on a lot of things. He 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 knows that this is East County um, District Two for uh, County Supervisor. East County, of course, a very Republican area. You know, he talked about the Second Amendment. Now he's a big defender of that. He talked about you know expanding Highway sixty seven, and um, he talked about a lot of issues that were relevant to East County. Um, and I know here in the city of Poway, you know, Mayor Voss has a lot of fans and he has a number of detractors. Um, but uh, I thought he had a very good performance on KUSI. So tip of the hat, tip of the cowboy hat to Steve Voss. Um, uh, also in the good column, this is the good, the bad and the ugly. In the good column, Padres Fan Fest, my wife and I, we went down yesterday and it was at Petco Park. It was free and, you know, it was a big PR event for the Padres. But I really wanted to go down to the Saquon stage. That's the stage right in front of the park in the park, the stage that's on the backside of the batter's eye. And they had, you know, all the broadcasters there, you know, um, Ted Leitner and Jesse Agler and Don Orsillo and Mark Grant. And they were having fun and goofing off and getting the crowd fired up. And then they brought out four of their, you know, young prospects. Um, one of them was uh, Luis Patino, who is the number two pitching prospect in the organization. I was really impressed with this young man. I I had assumed that he was a Dominican, that maybe English wasn't his first language, um, but you know he he was he was very you know tremendous um, up on stage. Then uh, Joey Cantillo, who's a, a lefty pitcher, big kid um, that was I think playing at Lake Elsinore last year. He's a top thirty prospect. Um, Taylor Trammell, who we got in the trade with um, Cincinnati, he's a 
uh, played double A last year. He's a center fielder. He was very impressive. I, I just think he has a presence about him, leadership. He's a great speaker. Um, I think he's got a great personality, great character. Uh, so when he eventually works his way up to the big leagues, I think he's going to be tremendous. And then Owen Miller was there. He's a, I think he was a double A, either second baseman or shortstop, another top 30 guy. So it was cool to see some of the young prospects there. And then, um, uh, then they brought up some of the major leaguers, and you know, Manny Machado was there, and boy, he was getting you know lots of love from the crowd. And uh, there was one moment he almost dropped an f bomb in front of everybody, but it was fun. And still, you know, it's interesting that Manny, just a complicated situation because he he has a certain kind of attitude or swagger about him that is, you know, is competitive, kind of a little bit aloof. Um, but some people don't take a liking to it. So I, there's always a certain segment that doesn't warm up to Manny. And, you know, people think some of that's driven by race. Um, I think Manny's a great guy. You just have to understand him for what he is and where he comes from and some of the challenges he faces. But I have no ill will towards Manny Machado. I thought he was terrific um, at the Fan Fest yesterday. And then, of course, Chris Paddock was there wearing the cowboy hat. And and he was he was great as well. And you could tell he's very confident. You know, we talk about, um, he, you know, the band Rush and believing in themselves and standing up for who they are and what they believe. Chris Paddock is the king of believing in yourself. And I've talked about him numerous times in this podcast. So I love seeing him up on stage. And then they had the two new guys that we got in the trade with Milwaukee. There was Zach Davies, a pitcher um, who seemed to be, you know, new guy, doesn't want to rock the boat, going with the flow. He should be like our number four or number five starter. And then um, Trent Grisham was there. And, you know, on stage, he was a little bit, I don't know, maybe a little bit reserved, um, I saw some interviews when he was in some of the more private settings. A little more personality was shown there, but these are all young men. These are all guys like in their early 20s, maybe mid-20s. I mean, even Manny Machado, I think, is only 27 or 28. Um, but it was really special to see them out there. Um, and, you know, Manny knows how to play to the crowd. You know, we want to bring a championship to San Diego and everyone's fired up. And then the event itself was wonderful. They had, you know, all kinds of activities for the kids. They could pitch in the bullpen. They could run the bases. Um, you know, of course, the Padres sales organizations out there full force selling their gear, selling season tickets. But it was a nice event. Um, so we had a little something to eat there and, you know, hung out for about an hour and a half, two hours, and then we're on our way. So that was good. Um, as we were walking out, I saw um, Stephen Woods, you know, the, the morning show on 97.3, Ben and Woods. Um, we saw Stephen Woods there um, with one of his children, and um, that was nice. Uh, but all oh, this is a great event. Okay, um, and here's a crazy one. You probably never expected in a million years I talk about this. But I'm going to put this in the good column. And this is with the, the royal family in in London. Um, and this whole notion of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and you've been following the news, um, you know, they're basically stepping away from the royal family to a great degree, not 100%. But And it's causing all kinds of consternation. And Queen Elizabeth is upset and Prince Charles is upset and, you know, uh, Prince William and everyone's trying to get organized around this. I know I I I think this is really cool. What and I I only know a little bit. And it's funny is I never really ever paid attention to any of this royalty stuff. Maybe a little bit when Princess Di was, you know, in the news, and certainly when she passed away. 
But, you know, there are some people that are completely mesmerized by the royalty. Um, but I I never really – I would get people mixed up, you know, like um, who's uh, Princess Margaret and, you know, and I, I think we're learning about Prince Andrew now <laughs> under different circumstances with the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. But I would never – I never had like a family tree and I would always get confused. But anyways, I, I remember watching the show The Crown on Netflix and it was really good. And it made me – understand the backstory and who's who. And, and so now I've been paying a little more attention. And then I know Meghan Markle, she's a, I think she's from California. Um, and I know that, you know, she has family that's in Mexico and, and then she gets some heat for that, for being biracial, which is nuts. Um, but uh, the fact that they are trying to disconnect themselves from the Royal family, I think is really cool because they this goes back to believing in yourself and individualism and standing up for you and living your life on your own terms on your based on your own values they want to disconnect and be themselves um now granted they're leveraging you know they've already created this brand what is it called Sussex Royale or, and they're trying to leverage their brand or leverage their relationship with the the royal family to create a brand but in the end they're trying to create their own income stream they're trying to become more like so-called normal people. Um, and the fact that they're just kind of throwing a monkey wrench into the whole royal family thing, I think it's cool. And I'm very fascinated by this. I'm very interested to see what happens. But um, I never thought in a million years that I would be saying something about the royal family. But the fact that someone is sort of declaring independence from it, I think it's neat. So I'm following that. So this is in the good column. And the last thing in the good column, you know, this is the good, the bad, and the ugly. BoJack Horseman. You ever watch this show? It's another Netflix one. Season six just came out about a month ago. If you've never seen it, it's, it's fantastic. It's a cartoon, all right? And it is very adult cartoon. And it's a parody of the whole Hollywood scene. But it talks a lot about addiction, drugs, alcohol. It talks about um, career struggles and relationship struggles. It's, it's actually a very deep show and it's funny because the way they make fun of Hollywood. Um, but it's, it's really well done. I, I, I really would encourage you to check it out. And it, at first you might not get it and it might take a little while to warm up, but I'm fascinated by this show. Um, one of the characters, actually the voice of one of the characters is Jesse from Breaking Bad. Um, and uh, it's just it's just bizarre. It's like everyone's – they're like – are all human bodies. But some people have human heads and some people have animal heads. Um, so Bojack Horseman is, is a horse. Um, but he is a, um, a star from a 1990s sitcom that is now a washed-up star. And – the show he was on in the 1990s is a lot like the show Full House was, you know, kind of a family oriented, kind of unusually configured family. Um, and he was beloved and and he has since gone from being this straight arrow um, goody two shoes character in his in his TV life, but he has a very dark side um, and a lot of struggles with addiction and um, depression and. Uh, it's it's a, an amazing show. So I would encourage you to check out BoJack Horseman. Um, I think it's great. And um, we just finished season six. I think there's a season seven coming, um, hopefully. So uh, looking forward to that. All right. Um, 
Hey, I, I already said earlier, join us on social media. You can, my, my handle on uh, Facebook is John Riley Project. I also have a special closed group on Facebook called the John Riley Project Insiders Group. We have a little bit of more intimate conversations with a smaller group of fans of the podcast. Um, I, I got to get more content out there in the Insiders Group. Um, but uh, I, invite, I invite you to join us there. At the very least, you know, follow or like us or whatever it is on Facebook so you can get all the updates. Because every podcast I, I produce, I will share it um, on my Facebook page. And I also will share it on my Twitter page. My handle there is John Riley Poway. So seek me out there. So, um, okay, the bad column. This is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, in the bad column, I told you I saw Steve Voss on KUSI this morning. I also saw Joel Anderson. Now, I'm a, I live in Poway. Um, you know, Mayor Voss is, is our mayor. And, you know, generally, I'm pretty supportive of Mayor Voss. I mean, I have my differences with them on some issues. Um, but what I'm saying here isn't because I'm partisan or I'm supportive of any one person. But Joel Anderson doesn't come across as very likable. Um, he's just kind of um, – yeah, he's just not very warm. You know, uh, Voss, I told you, it does tremendous in front of the camera. I thought Anderson was awkward, maybe a little bit abrasive, a little bit argumentative. Now, granted, this is on KUSI where they seem to have a love fest with Steve Voss. Um, that's like a very favorable group of uh, of um, of interviewers. Um, but I, I just thought Joel Anderson was just came across as very unlikable. Now, granted, he has strong support from hardcore Republicans in that district because you know he was serving that area in the state assembly and in the state senate. This is going to be an intriguing race. Uh, Voss got the endorsement of Diane Jacobs, who's the the incumbent who's being termed out. But Joel Anderson got the um, endorsement from the Republican Party here in San Diego County. So uh, they're going to vote in in March. I think it's March 3rd, I think. Um, and so I'm fascinated by this race. Uh, but I imagine they'll take the top two. It'll probably end up being Anderson and Voss. And then they'll run again in November. There's a third candidate that's running, but and I think she's a Democrat. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe she'll be able to see those other two candidates split the difference, and maybe she'll end up getting into the general election in November. I haven't heard much about her, but um, this district is extremely red. So I would expect definitely Anderson or Voss is going to win. Um, but um, yeah, I, I didn't think Anderson did a very good job on television at all. Um, also in the bad column, this we talked earlier. We did a podcast um, a number of months ago about uh, the bill that was passed by the California state legislator and signed by Gavin Newsom, which was AB five, and this was the gig economy one. This is the one that basically was telling Uber and Lyft and DoorDash that you can't have independent contractors; you got to make them employees. And and I I was very critical of that because. I think the gig economy is fantastic. I think the gig economy gives people an entrepreneurial spirit that gives them an opportunity to think differently about their career, to potentially position themselves to earn a great deal more. I make my career in the gig economy. Um, I do project work for clients. I do consulting work for clients. Um, in some cases, I'm working at their um, facility, but not as an employee. Sometimes I'm working remotely but not as an employee. I love it. It gives me flexibility, control over my schedule. I generally will earn a much better wage than I would as an employee uh, because the, the, the company isn't burdened with 
healthcare um, benefits or you know having to do matches on payroll taxes and the like. It, it works for them and it works for me, and it's a win-win. Um, so when I saw this um, AB five uh, coming down, and it was really pushed by you know progressives by liberals that um, wanted to em- so-called empower uh, the workers to be employees um, so they can get all the benefits of being an employee. But what's ended up happening is, is now companies are just not hiring and they're just letting them go. And the, the funny story was, is there's an online media source called Vox, V-O-X.com. And they typically produce articles, write stories from a very left-wing perspective. They... Would, you would expect that they would have been supportive of this bill, AB5, they, but they had a lot of freelance writers that were gig economy people. And supposedly they let 200 of them go because they didn't want to bring them on as employees. And so you can see how this AB5 is screwing over these workers, the workers that now are not getting any income from their previous client, workers that loved the flexibility and control over their schedule. Maybe they, they wanted to manage their life around their, their children's school schedule. Maybe they had a family member that they needed to care for. Maybe they had a couple of other gigs and interesting projects they were working on. Um, or maybe they just wanted to live on their own terms and have a schedule that they dictated. Um, now those people are suddenly no longer connected with um, uh, with Vox, so it was kind of ironic, you know, to see or, or to see this happen, where the progressive company essentially progressive media source letting these people go. Um, now we're seeing that um, you know Uber and Lyft and da- DoorDash are fighting it, which you'd expect. But truckers were greatly affected by this. Truckers, a lot of them gig economy workers. I mean, heck, I go back in my own history. Um, my stepfather owned a truck and he was an owner operator. And so he was like a contract trucker. He wasn't an employee of the company that he did business with, but he was an independent. And a lot of those guys are now in, in, in a bad spot because they're losing their jobs. And so what ended up happening is, is that the state legislature carved out an exemption for truckers so that they won't be impacted by AB5, which to me just proves the fact that it never should have been acted in the first place. You know, when they have to have different rules for different industries and rather than having equality under the law. Um, so... Lorena Gonzalez, who's the assemblyman that uh, assemblywoman that was one of the driving voices of this, she still have been very active and very public um, on social media. Boy, she's getting you know shots fired at her, um, and in my opinion, rightfully so. There's another guy that I follow here on social media in San Diego County, uh, Brian Brady, who's a great guy. I, I'd love to have Brian. If you're, Brian, if you're watching this podcast, I'd love to have you as a guest. Um, we share a lot of sense, common political sensibilities and we're both Irishmen. Uh, but uh, Brian has been very critical of her on social media and just, you know, it's incredible. So um, this AB5, I think is just a disaster. And we're seeing how it's impacting these workers. And we're only, you know, less than two weeks into the new year. Keep an eye on this. I wonder at some point will they retreat and um, undo this? I don't know. Um, but it's funny how a lot of these kinds of policies that are meant to help out the little guy end up harming the little guy. Um, you know, AB5 against the gig worker does that. Minimum wage does that. I mean, we can go on and on. Um, 
Another one in the bad column, and this is, I know, sort of bad. I mean, in some ways it's understood. It's what's going on in the California primary. And if you are a no party preference voter like me, I'm a independent. I'm not registered as a Republican. I'm not registered as a Democrat. I'm not registered as green or libertarian or anything else. I'm just no party preference. So it's interesting when you look at these primaries in some states, in some primaries, they'll allow these independent voters to vote in the Democratic uh, nomination or not, or in the Republican or not. And so in California, the way they set it up is, is that only Republicans can vote in the Republican primary. Now, granted, the Republican primary is a farce. Um, it's it's going to be Donald Trump, and he's got you know Bill Weld, who I think is a good egg. Bill Weld, I think former ma- uh, governor of Massachusetts. I like Bill Weld a lot. Um, I think um, you know he he's running in some states. the The GOP is just canceling the primary. They're just anointing Trump as the winner of their state for the Republican primary. I don't know what California is going to do. We'll see. Uh, but anyways, Republicans said only Republicans can vote on their ballot, which, okay, fine. But what gets confusing is that if an independent wants to vote in the Democratic primary and, you know, vote for Bernie or Elizabeth or Andrew Yang or Pete Buttigieg or, or you know, Joe Biden or whomever, um, Democrats can vote in the Democratic primary, obviously. And if you're no party preference, you have to request a special ballot and, and in order to get the Democrats on your ballot. Um, and that deadline, by the way, I think passed um, like earlier this week. So it's, the deadline's gone. I'm no party preference. And I was thinking about, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, should I switch my party in order to vote for a certain person? Like, no, because none of them I really like that much. Um, do I want to just this one time request the Democratic uh, uh, primary and vote for one of them, uh, even though I wouldn't vote for them in the general election? Like, well, probably not. You know, by the way, I think I mentioned before, the ones that I like on the Democratic Party, I guess the least worst ones are um, Andrew Yang and Mayor Pete and um, uh, Tulsi to a degree. And, and then I think Amy Klobuchar. I, I think those are the four that I, w- I would maybe even possibly consider voting for if I were to request the Democratic uh, um, ballot. But I figured, you know what? I'm not going to vote for any of these people in the general election anyways. So why should I vote for them in the primary? So I decided I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to – when I go into the ballot box in March, um, my my ballot – as no party preference, I won't be able to vote for any of the presidential candidates. And that's fine. Um, but I'm going to be able to vote on the propositions. I'm going to vote on the um, local races. And that's what I'm really mostly interested in anyways. So, um, but it is, the fact that it's just so confusing is I think why it's in the bag column. You know, it's, it's, I, it's the party's prerogative to be able to say if only members of their party vote in their primary or not. I get that. But you would think that you could vote for whomever you want to vote for on any ballot. You know, you wouldn't be precluded from voting from certain people. But that's just the way the game is played. That's the way the game is rigged for these two main parties. So um, I just really disappointed with the confusion, a confusion part of that. And speaking of which, Andrew Yang, I've, 
we talked about him. My son really likes Andrew Yang. And I did a whole podcast about universal basic income and Yang's candidacy. I think, um, well, first of all, the reason I'm bringing up Yang in the bag column right now is that they screwed him over. Um, he's not going to be on the debate stage, which I think is tomorrow, no, Tuesday night, um, because, you know, they have polls that he has to rank in and you got to get so many, you know, financial contributions and dollar amounts. And he had met all the funding requirements. Um, but he had to be, I guess, in four polls above a certain percentage. You know, they keep ratcheting up the uh, qualification criteria, which I hate. Uh, and I've objected to that. I've mentioned it before. It's essentially the party is making choices before the voters have a chance to vote. Um, and to me, this is very anti-democratic. Um, and the Democrats are doing it this um, cycle. The Republicans did the same damn thing in 2016, where they would ratchet up the criteria to qualify on the debate. And, you know, once a candidate is no longer on the debate stage, they are kind of cast aside as almost irrelevant. You know, their candidacy is doomed. They don't get as much fundraising and people begin forgetting about them. Um, so Yang, he didn't make the stage because he didn't appear on enough ballots, but they hadn't done a, the, any of these ballots in those states. And I think this is a, in Iowa, the, primary is going to be, I mean, the debate. Uh, they hadn't done any um, local polls for over a month. You know, like, this is ridiculous. And they said, oh, yeah, it was the holidays and we didn't want to do polling. Well, they should have done a poll last week after New Year's um, because Yang, his trajectory is going up right now. He's just been going, going up. And now he's going to be left off the stage. But I, I think that's just terrible. And that's why I have him in the bad column. But um, I, I think there are certain aspects of Andrew Yang's campaign platform that I think are fantastic. Um, I'm not a big fan of UBI. I did a whole podcast on that. I love it how it's innovative, but I don't necessarily like the policy itself. Because, you know, once everyone gets a thousand bucks a month, then then they're going to start saying, we, we need 1500 a month. We need a living wage. We need 2000 a month. And then before you know it, um, you know, the politicians will start handing it out and then it'll just spiral out of control, in my opinion. And there are other reasons I'm not a fan of it. But he has taken strong stances that I agree with on a lot of other issues. Um, I love his bravery. I love the way he um, uh, takes positions on a long list of things um, on his website, way more than any other candidate, because um, most candidates are coy. They're calculating. You know, we talked about that with, with – um, uh, with Fernando uh, when he was here earlier this week about um, how candidates will not talk about certain issues so they avoid alienating groups so they can avoid taking a, a, making a tough choice or taking a position. Andrew Yang takes a position on everything. I love that in him. And um, I just like him as a person. I think he's a, a man of great character. I think he's very relatable. Um, he's the kind of guy that you feel good around. Um so I, I, I'm rooting for his success. I'm, I'm also rooting for Pete Buttigieg's success. I think he's smart, intelligent. Um, he's about the same thing, right? Um, he's uh, you know, a veteran. He's uh, thoughtful, authentic. I like Pete Buttigieg too. Um, but, and he'll be on the stage, of course, but Yang won't. So that's in the bad column. And the other one in the bad column, it's kind of a sad, is uh, Marianne Williamson is stepping down from the race. You remember Marianne Williamson is Oprah's spiritual advisor, um, and she is a candidate for president, and she's finally stepping down. 
Now, you say what you will about her. I mean, you know, she she was out there with some of her things, but I do appreciate the fact that she was wanting to bring love into the conversation and have policies that were driven by love. And I know that sounds crazy from a political perspective, but I appreciated that in her because that's who she is. Um, and we could all use more love in politics because there's so much hate, so much evilness, so much backstabbing in politics that it was nice to hear a candidate talk about love. And, you know, of course, she had no chance. She never did. But it was just nice having her around. Um, and now she's gone. But that's what happens as we get closer and closer to the time that people vote, we start losing candidates and the candidates keep falling off to the wayside because they don't get in the debates. And once you're not in the debates, the media doesn't cover you as much. Donors don't give you as much money. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you're doomed. I'm afraid uh, that Yang is in that spot. Hopefully we'll see him on the next debate stage. Um, I hope we haven't seen the last of him. Um. Okay, before we get to the ugly, and I want to just say real quick, please subscribe to our YouTube channel right below. Click on that subscribe button. If you're on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, the new name for iTunes, at least the podcast portion, please subscribe there too. We're trying to build the audience and, um, you know, please share our our episodes with people. That would be really helpful. Um, Okay, now let's talk about the ugly And boy, I've had a number of conversations with some of our local friends here um, on Facebook. And these are two hot issues. The first one is this Proposition P that's getting going here in Poway Unified School District. They're now getting ready. You're going to start seeing signs and campaigning for this new school bond for Poway Unified School District. And this is going to be fascinating. Um, They're they're wanting to borrow 448 million dollars. Um, this is four times what they borrowed in the billion dollar bond, but they're financing it through a more traditional bond. So I think the billion dollar bond, you know, I th- in very rough terms was like about 150, $170 million that was paid for um, uh, over the course of 20 years, totaling one, nearly $1 billion in payments. Um, that that was outrageous. It was nearly a one to ten ratio of payback, and um, it got it, it made Poway uh, Unified a national embarrassment. It was on the you know front page of major newspapers, um, you know, and then later on, of course, the school superintendent was uh, caught embezzling money, found guilty in a court of law, and and he was dismissed. And there was and all this controversy, but. That bond was just so egregious, so awful. You always wondered, would they ever ask for a bond again? Well, now here we are. The school district is making the claim that the roofs are leaking and air conditioning isn't working and, and you know, we can't teach our children in a safe environment. You know, they're right. Um, they're, they're, the school does need improvement. What's interesting is that some of the schools that need improvement were the ones that were funded originally by the billion-dollar bond less than 10 years ago, and some of those facilities need to be fixed again, even though they promised us that those would have a lifetime far, far longer. But there are other schools that are suffering, and they legitimately need help. Um, 
The question is, is should we pass a bond? I've been very outspoken on this. I am a big no, no on P. I, I think this is a bad move. Well, the school district already has bonds that are cooking, bonds that we're paying on. The billion-dollar bond, those payments don't start until 2033 and will go for 20 consecutive years. That bond cannot be financed. We're going to pay over – well, not over, nearly a billion dollars – and then now we got this other bond that's coming forward, and this would be a 28-year term on this new bond for Prop P. So we're talking about layers upon layers upon layers of debt. Now, this – you might say, well, this is infrastructure improvement. It's for the children. It's for the kids. We've got to do this. Well, yeah, you got to fix the damn schools, no doubt about it. But how do you pay for it? That's the question. Are you going to come back to the voters again who just got screwed over on a billion dollar bond and demand that they pay more? You know, it's I think it's like 55 bucks for every thousand dollars your property is worth. So no, do I have that right? Um, So if you are. Yeah, I think that's about right. So I think if you're. If your home is has a va- assessed value of around $500,000, I think this is roughly about $250 a year that would be added to your taxes. If your home is worth roughly a million dollars, then your taxes would be increased about 500 or more dollars a year. So we're not talking about tiny money. This is a significant amount of money. Um, should the school district come back to the voters who just got screwed on the billion-dollar bond and ask for more. All the while considering the fact that the school district is managing its finances poorly, has been having multiple years of consecutive budget deficits. Um, I served on uh, on the uh, Budget Review Advisory Committee. In fact, I chaired it uh, back in 20... What was it, 2016? No, it was in 2015. Pardon me. In 2015, we made a recommendation to the school board then. You are facing a structural deficit. What this means is that they're recurring annual expenses, you know, like for salaries, things that are recurring every year. Their recurring expenses were greater than their recurring revenues. But it was masked. It was not made visible because there was a lot of additional one-time money that back then Jerry Brown would would send down to the school district that would paper over that structural deficit and made it look like it was a balanced budget or maybe a small surplus. But you can't count on one-time money. You you uh, If you have a structural deficit, you have to get those aligned. We warned them, stop spending on new things cut spending where you can to get this in line. We even gave a list of recommendations on places where they could cut. Um, The school board ignored us, ignored our recommendation, instead continued to give raises to the teachers, give raises to the other employees in the district, give raises to management. This is all part of the quid pro quo, right? Where the unions endorse the candidates, the candidates are elected, and then they in turn will quid pro quo return the favor and and give the raises uh, to the teachers, to the management, and now they're working on the other employees, the, the so-called um, classified employees. You know, these are the administrators, the non-teachers, essentially. Um, they But they continue to give out those raises, and now we find ourselves 
mired in more and more deficits. And, and, th- and you're thinking, how can you have a deficit when we're in a so-called robust economy, a, a time when tax revenue dollars flowing into Sacramento should be so significant? And it is. Um, but what happens with these local government agencies, and we're seeing this in other school districts, other city governments, not in Poway yet, um, but certainly in the city of San Diego, certainly in other school districts, they're all facing these huge deficits. And you're thinking, how could this be possible when revenues coming into the district are growing? And it's because they're just spending more. They spend it just as fast as it comes in um, and sometimes faster than it comes in, creating these deficits. And so you're thinking, at least I'm thinking, we got screwed over by the school district with the billion-dollar bond. And yeah, sure, these are different people, different superintendent, different school board. I get it. But still, as a taxpayer, we got screwed. Now, you're coming to us for more when you can't even manage your annual budget, when you can't even balance your budget. When we're having a robust economy, in good times, you should be saving money. You should have a surplus that's put aside. Um, and then in, in bad times, like if we ever hit another recession, I mean, it, the shit's going to hit the fan because they'll have to have mass layoffs. It'll be ugly because in bad times, you want to have that cushion. You want to have that reserve to get you through. But right now we're burning through the reserve. We're burning through the reserve at such a rate that it's, it's become a news item. And you know, we're below right now. We're below. I think it's a ten percent threshold that they had set for themselves. Now the budget, uh, um, excuse me, the um, reserve fund is below that that amount, ten percent of the annual revenue. And now they're saying, well, we can get it down to two. It's because I think around two percent is the minimum uh, required by the county board of education. It's approximately that. And but that's dangerous territory, my friends, because if the, we go into a, a recession, and many people predict that we are. I mean, it's going to get ugly and it's going to get ugly fast. Um, so I, I believe, and I've said this from the beginning, the school district needs repairs on these facilities, um, needs infrastructure improvements. Some of these classrooms are in trailers with leaky roofs and it's legit. The problem is real. We can debate how big of a problem it is. We can debate how much money they really need, but there really is a need at some degree. Um, what they need to do is figure out how to live within their own budget. Now, keep in mind, the school district has a revenues of about $400 million a year. They're asking for $448 million in this bond to be paid out over the course of 28 years. Okay. So it's very possible that if they were to make some strategic decisions and then just carve out like 5% of the budget, which would be $20 million a year and spend $20 million a year over the course of that 28 years, they could pay for this, these infrastructure improvements over time. Um, but they don't want to do that because they're, they're, the school board is so tightly um, in bed, so tightly um, held hostage by the unions. They don't dare vote, vote to cut salaries. They don't dare try to figure out innovative ways to do, to have less employees. Because if they did, the unions would come after the, the elected school board members and have a fierce 
campaign battle and try to kick them out of office. And they don't want that. They don't want to be on the bad side of the unions. So they keep giving the unions everything they want. And what it ends up doing is it pushes other expenses off the budget. Infrastructure improvements, even like things like tables and chairs, they have fundraisers for that sort of thing in these schools. You're thinking, how can you not have that as part of the budget? The reason they don't have it in the budget is because the salaries are now 80% or more of the total spending. It just pushes everything off to the edge. And then the you know people are you know have to do fundraising and community has to chip in to fill in these gaps. I did a whole podcast um, probably about two months ago on ways the school district can save money to clear space so they can fund the infrastructure improvements out of their four hundred million dollar a year revenue stream. And the first thing they need to do is to make ask themselves some very hard questions of the. Um, All of the services that the school district provides that are outside of the classroom, things like warehousing, trucking, food services, payroll services. I mean, we can go on down the line. Can those services be provided by a private company for a lesser amount of money? And if the answer is yes, they need to switch and save taxpayers money. And not only will they save taxpayer dollars if they can outsource it at a lower price, But they can also save by not having those employees on staff that have these huge pension burdens that go on for many, many, many years and have these also these employees that are in these step and column matrices where they get raises um, for either longevity or for additional credentialing that will bump them up to higher levels. So there's some serious questions that need to be asked because. Is our education system about education or is it about education and all these other things? And out of all those other things, how do you stack rank them? What's the priority order? The ones that are at the bottom of that priority list need to be cut, need to either be eliminated as a service that the school district provides or be outsourced to someone else. Like if you drive around town, you'll see like Poway Unified, you know, trucks and moving things around. Keep in mind that you know they're making capital investments in those trucks. They got to have maintenance on those trucks. They got employees that you know are are driving the trucks, that are loading the trucks, that are maintaining the trucks, and all of those employees, their salaries keep going up. All of those employees have uh, long term pensions. Imagine if they only they use a third party and only paid for the truck when they needed it, and then someone else would deliver it. They can do that with with warehousing where they keep all of their um, their supplies, computer parts. You know, they have warehousing for that. That can easily be outsourced to a third party. There are companies that do payroll services that could be outsourced. All of these things need to be looked at. What can we cut? What can we outsource outside the classroom? In addition, there are ways that they can do with less than teachers, less teachers. Imagine that. My proposal is, is that in the high school Um, In the high school uh, level for college bound students, college bound students that are taking classes like chemistry, physics, biology, humanities, um, English lit, history, those kinds of, you know, the A through E requirements for the UC system. Those students are going to go to a large university or or even a community college. They're going to be in a lecture hall environment in just a couple of years. Why not start that now? Why not, instead of having, let's just say, three chemistry teachers in a high school, and then having, like in Poway Unified, there are five high schools. 
no, six high schools, pardon me, six high schools, rather than having, you know, two or three chemistry teachers at six high schools, why not just have the best chemistry teacher, one, that teaches in the performing arts centers or in the auditoriums at each school and rotates around? And maybe we have a couple of like junior teachers that assist. And the, those lectures are attended by large class sizes, no longer 25 or 30 kids. Maybe there's 100. Now, this makes obviously no sense for first and second grade, obviously. But if you're a junior in high school and you're going to be going to UCLA in a couple of years, I mean, you're going to be going in those lecture hall anyways. So why not kind of – it's college prep, right? So why not get them prepped for what lectures are going to be like? And then imagine if those lectures are also um, live streamed. That are, that are captured on video, and then students can go back on their own time and review those lectures. So there's all kinds of innovative ways we can do with less teachers. There are innovative things we can do to outsource or eliminate services outside the classroom. And then when you start outsourcing or eliminating services outside the classroom, you can begin eliminating the management at the top of the org chart that are responsible for those services that happen to have fat you know, six-figure salaries. So there's lots of opportunity to do that. So I'm going to be a big no on Prop P when that comes out, and you'll hear more from me later on this. Um, the last in the ugly column, is, and we're seeing conversation about this, is the Prop 13 split, split roll. And this is a proposition that's coming forward where they want to repeal Prop 13, which is the um, proposition from the late 70s, Howard uh, Jarvis and was it Jarvis and there was one other person with Howard Jarvis. Was it Gann? Jarvis Gann? I can't recall. But it was a, um, a state law that was enacted by the voters that um, essentially controlled property taxes. Not only did it keep the rate at 1%, but it prevented the properties from increasing their assessed value. I think it was no more than 2% a year. And so uh, this was a, a, a great thing for taxpayers. It saved them a great deal of money. It also protected, you know, the uh, grandma that lives in a house that, you know, has fixed income and can't afford dramatically higher property tax prices that would have pushed grandma out of the house. It protected her as well. Um, but there are a lot of people that have been wanting to repeal Prop 13 for a long time. There are many people that think that Prop 13 destroyed education in California, when in fact, property tax revenue in California has, you know, rock, hockey stick, rocket ship up since Prop 13 was passed, largely due to the dramatically increased value of homes in California. Well, anyways, this proposition, what they want to do is they want to remove the Prop 13 uh, protection for commercial property. So imagine a, a building that has retail in it and has restaurants or a building that has warehouses in it. They want to remove the Prop 13 protection from that because those evil corporations don't pay enough in taxes. They're not paying their fair share. That's the argument. And then some people are saying, well, since commercial property doesn't turn over as frequently, um, those they will go for much longer periods of time until they're reassessed at their market value. And so people think they're sneaking by not paying enough taxes. Now, never mind the fact that California has the highest income tax, the highest state-level income tax, uh, state-level sales tax before you add the county and city layers on top, has the highest, I think, 
um, gas tax, has one of the highest corporate taxes, one of the highest capital gains taxes. It seems like the only category where the taxes are somewhat in, in, in control is property taxes. And even then, the size of the check that people write for property taxes is huge compared to the property tax bill and the people in other states pay because the value of property here is so high. So um, they want to repeal Prop 13 for commercial properties because, of course, those evil corporations are not paying their fair share. They need to pay more. But you know what? Those evil corporations that own that commercial property, by and large, will not pay the tax. Because when you lease commercial property, they're going to get as high of a rate as they want, right? Just like in a market economy, they're going to get the highest price they want. But and, and Kevin McNamara talked about this when he was on, on the podcast. And it was I, – I can't believe I didn't think of this earlier. But it's right. Is that when you lease property, you have what's called triple net. So you have your base rate for the lease of the property. But then they add on the triple net, which are the price for taxes, insurance, and maintenance around the property. So basically what happens is, is that whatever the property tax rate is, it's just passed through. The property owner, well, yeah, they'll be the one writing the check to pay the property tax, but the burden of it falls entirely on the company that's leasing that space. So is the evil corporation that owns the property going to pay more? Really, they're not uh, because it's the property, the company that's leasing it, that restaurant, that mom and pop uh, dry cleaner, that uh, small retail store. They're the ones that are going to see their monthly expense for their lease is going to go up because all of it is passed through in the triple net. So I, I think this is awful uh, because these businesses are already facing increased wages due to the minimum wage keeps going up. Then here we have a case of um, we, have, we have a case here of uh, property taxes going up on the landlord, which are 100 percent passed down because of triple net down to the, the, the company that's leasing the property. This is putting more and more burden on these small businesses. And what are those small businesses going to do? Well, they can raise their prices. That's going to affect consumers or they're going to close. And when they close, they lose jobs. So in the end, this is damaging. But what, th what this is, it's kind of like what's happening with Poway Unified. It's, it's the constant demand for more and more taxes, mostly to pay for government workers, for their for compensation, for their benefits, et cetera. I mean, the, the pensions for government employees is astronomical. There, there's a demand for more and more and more tax revenue to satisfy those workers, largely because those workers are unionized, they endorse candidates, and there's that quid pro quo relationship we talked about at the, at the Poway Unified School District level that exists in Sacramento, too. So this constant pressure um, for more and more taxation is ultimately going to be paid for by the little guy, the little retail store the little corner market, the little dry cleaner, the little restaurant, they're going to be bearing the burden of this, as well as large companies, large grocers, et cetera, that are, are leasing that space. It's going to impact entrepreneurs that are starting new companies, that are creating jobs. 
Um, and it's also going to impact consumers with higher prices. In fact, it could be a double whammy on consumers because they may, A, lose their job and B, be faced with higher prices at the same time. So um, this um, idea of the split role on Prop 13 needs to be seriously um, rejected by voters. And that's what I'm hoping for. And as more information comes out on this, I'll be commenting on it um, again. Um, Wow, we were covering a lot of ground in this podcast. So uh, a couple of things. Um, First of all, I want to thank you for listening or watching. If you've been this deep into the podcast, I appreciate your um, – I appreciate your interest in what we're doing here. You know, this is a podcast about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We talk about issues in our community in Poway, Rancho Bernardo, Rancho Penasquitos, 4S Ranch, uh, Carmel Mountain Ranch, Saber Springs. I mean, these are all the areas that are going to be impacted by Prop P, the the um, bond for the Poway Unified School District. We talk about issues in this area. We talk about San Diego County issues, and we even comment on some national issues. And and we even comment on the royal family, so which we did today too. We comment on rock and roll. We comment on uh, sports. Lots of different things we cover in this podcast, and we really thank you for participating in it. Um, what what can you do if you really want to help out? The best thing you can do is just share this with a friend. Um, Share a post on social media. Like I said, I put all the episodes on Facebook or Twitter. Just um, you know, share one of those. Retweet them. Uh, get those out to other people. And if you think we deserve it, um, leave a rating in, in um, Apple Podcasts, a five-star rating if you think we deserve it, and a few comments about the show. That would be so appreciated. Um, okay, so uh, as we get near the end here, I've got two closing quotes, um, and I love – kind of going through the process of finding quotes that are relevant to the podcast. And of course, these are both from Neil Peart. And, um, and these are really cool. I really like these. So the, the first one is, and this, isn't, this is from one of his interviews. It's not even a lyric. And I, when I read this, it really kind of shook me. And he said, extroverts never understand introverts. And it was like that in school days. Now, remember, this is like that song Subdivisions we talked about, about the kids in high school and all the pressures they face. So extroverts never understand introverts, and it was like that in school days. I read recently that all of us can be defined in adult life by the way others perceived us in high school. Whoa. Remember I read that and I was thinking, wow. So he's saying, and actually he said he read it from somewhere else, but it's an interesting theory that we can be defined in our adult life by the way other people perceived us in high school. So think about how people thought of you in high school and is that a reflection of really how your adult life is? Now, granted, we shouldn't give a shit about what other people think about us, right? We shouldn't care about that. But this is an interesting exercise. Makes you think. Um, I don't know if that's accurate. I think there's a degree of truth in it. Um, but it's interesting. So Neil Peart, remember, he is an intellectual deep thinker, um, and a lyricist, a poet, a musician, a true artist. And he is greatly lost with his uh, passing last week. But here's another one that he, he put out, and I thought this was good too. You can surrender, this is from Neil Pert. you can surrender without a prayer, but never really pray without surrender. You can fight without ever winning, but never ever win Without a fight. Whoa. Let me, let me repeat this one again, too. You can never 
oh, excuse me, you can surrender without a prayer. And that makes sense. You can surrender without a prayer, but never really pray without surrender. That's true is you have to kind of give yourself up. You have to strip all the nonsense away, surrender all the, um, the layers of what you project to the outside world to really get to your inner core before you can really pray. That makes sense to me. And then he said, you can fight without ever winning. That's true. (laughs) How many of us do that in our life? We fight and we don't win. That happens a lot. You can fight without ever winning, but never ever win without a fight. If you want to win, you got to fight through. You got to battle. Um, You just got to pick your battles. You got to pick the ones that you think you can be successful in winning because there are definitely some battles that there's no winner. So why even go down that path? So, wow, Neil Peart, what a guy. Um, Drummer for Rush, passed away. I was fortunate. I got to see him at the San Diego Sports Arena in 2012. Tremendous man. Like I said, an artist, an author, a poet, a lyricist, a percussionist. One of the one of, if not the best drummer in rock and roll history. Listen to his music. It's not just drums. It's all sorts of percussion, um, all kinds of, um, you know, kind of international sounding drums, um, xylophones, um, chimes. I mean, his kit was just fantastic. His kit was 360 degrees around him, just loaded with any possible thing. The guy was fantastic and just precision robot on drums. Just what a talent. Uh, He will be greatly missed. So I encourage you, go out there, listen to some Rush music, get inspired, um, bust out some lyrics. Um, We talked about some of the songs. We talked about subdivisions. Um, We talked about uh, what other ones? Red Barchetta, The Trees, YYZ, and the the Morse code pattern. Um, We talked about Anthem. We talked about Spirit of the Radio, Tom Sawyer, um, uh, Entree New. Oh, man. And I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg. Um, I'll be listening to some Rush this next week for sure. So this is John Riley. This is the John Riley podcast, John Riley Project. It's a podcast about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're signing off, my friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And have a great 2020. See you later, folks. Bye-bye.